Hey guys, welcome to the Better Building Systems Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferrier, and here with me today is Jim DePasquale and Mark Sankey. So in today's podcast, we will be discussing emerging technologies in our industry. And, you know, this was an interesting podcast uh, topic for me because when I when I started doing research about it, being new into the industry, uh, a lot of things fell into the network networking end of emerging technology in our industry rather than like the mechanical equipment end. Um, and maybe that's kind of how things are trending, obviously just being, you know, where we are in the world today. So we'll see kind of where this conversation goes, but nonetheless, I thought it would be um, a very interesting conversation to have with you guys. So what do we mean by emerging technology? I guess applications of new technology uh, to either mechanical equipment or controls that maybe we we do see or we don't see value in. I guess it can be an emerging technology that we don't think is going to get traction. I don't know. So like I said, we'll see what comes up. Um, I think it'll be a really interesting discussion. To get started, the first thing I kind of had on my mind was VFDs and the applications of VFDs. Um, that seems like everything now is getting a variable speed drive to save energy, better control, what have you. What do you guys think about that? Well, I think it, uh, you know, from my perspective, VFDs are not new. Uh, what is new, though, is the cost compression that's going on, the continued advance in the uh, in the technology embedded in VFDs, you know, and for a long time, the uh, um, VFDs themselves were a cause of noise. They were a cause of harmonics. They were, uh, you know, not necessarily providing uh, very good waveforms to the uh, connected uh, loads. But now, basically, that has all been corrected, and even beyond that, a lot, uh, a number of other additional, uh, a lot more functionality is embedded. You know, whether you're using constant torque, uh, constant horsepower, constant current, uh, you know, a variety of uh, control algorithms are embedded. So there's just a lot more flexibility and less concern about damage to equipment because there's so many protections embedded in them. Not only damage to the connected equipment, but damage to the uh, electrical infrastructure due to um, harmonics and stacking of harmonics and burn neutrals and all those things that go with it. Yeah, Mark, I agree. I mean, the the two biggest things that jumped out to me recently would be FDs, as you mentioned, is the cost. They've come down tremendously in cost where a lot of times it makes sense now to throw a VFD um, on a pump, you know, especially when before, you know, it just didn't make sense, you know, like, you know, I'll just throw condenser water, for example, that's typically always been a constant speed um, application. There's not as much benefit of throwing variable speed pumps on a condenser water loop as in a variable speed um, chilled water loop. But depending on your project application, you know, the, the premium to put a VFD on there can save you a lot of hassle when it comes to balancing or depending on how, if you have multiple chillers and cooling towers sharing, you know, common headers, um, you're no longer relying you know, on hoping you're you're falling within a good design envelope in the pump curve with your constant speed pump, it just opens up a lot more flexibility um, to where you know it's it's worth that much smaller premium than than there used to be. Um, and I, you know, I've seen firsthand the power quality improvements because it you know there was there used to be negative effects both downstream and upstream of the drive. It would be sending you know square waves and poor quality to whatever motor you were you were driving but it was also causing all kinds of havoc to the rest of the um you know power system feeding the drives and a lot of that's improved tremendously over the last few years yeah i gotta say i've never you know getting into the industry in the last few years have seen any issues with multiple drives you know at a facility causing power quality issues and maybe it's the quality of drives or i don't know it's just that was never something that was you know uh 
on my radar, I guess you would say. <laughs> oh, there used to be, you know, drives, and Jim, you, you've seen them, go back to an old drive and the um, cubic foot displacement of a drive has gone down by, you know, an order of magnitude. Oh, really? Um, oh, my gosh. There would be, you know, gigantic capacitors and line reactors inside the, um, inside the, um, drive body itself as you know maybe even some clamping diodes and all that stuff was just it was big it was heat generating therefore energy consuming yeah i was gonna say and slow yeah you know, much slower than you know the microprocessors that are running this stuff now and you know uh, you know there was a basically a time when you would price a drive at a thousand bucks a horsepower and now i mean we're at probably i don't know pick a number 150 bucks a horsepower or in that range anyway um so you talk about value the manufacturers have done a very commendable job to rapidly maybe not rapidly but certainly continuously improve the quality of what you get for your investment yeah it seems like like basically everything just comes with a drive now for the most part I mean, it, when you get above a certain horsepower range, if it's a pump or what have you, a fan, anything. But I mean, it, I don't know. Like, I'm trying to think of how many constant speed, you know, motors I see compared to with VFDs, and the vast majority is just everything's got to drive on it now. So, well, and typically you go through the design process, and it makes life simpler for everybody: the right. designer, right? Yep. The balancer, mm -hmm. the controls guy. I mean, back in the day, way back in the day, there were things called eddy current drives, which were basically, you know, almost touching uh, plates that you would apply a, uh, a variable uh, voltage to that would either sandwich together tighter or looser, and you consequently had slip that generated heat, of course, but um, that controlled the speed of the motor. Yeah. Wow. Eddy current drives, viscous coupling drives, um, you know, all kinds of just heat generating heat, stuff, heat generating stuff that you use and even inlet guide vanes, you know, all these pretty archaic things that you use to control airflow, uh, which, you know, all that goes away. And even three-way mixing valves have been in many cases replaced by variable speed drive pumps. No, uh, and and a similar uh, note, you know, the, with VFDs, um, it's not so a VFD is a variable frequency drive, but on some of the smaller pumps and fans, you get into ECM motors. Mm -hmm. um, you're seeing that a lot, you know, five horsepower and under, where that's more. It's actually a direct current motor, and the ECMs acting more like a very similar to a VFD. You know, you're you're you have you're converting from AC to DC, um, whereas a, a VFD would be more like a AC DC to AC converter. But you know those the ECM motors. I remember those coming out around. I don't know. I just remember around ten years ago, they started popping up. But they've come down. You know, similar to VFDs, they've come down tremendously in price, and they only used to be available in like very small fractional horsepower applications. And now I'm starting to see them you know, up to five horsepower. Um, so yeah, that's, you know, very similar to VFDs is uh, you, you find a lot of ECM motors with package controls right on the motor um, and some of the smaller fan and circulator applications. What about other, you know, aside from a fan or a pump VFDs is, you know, new applications to putting drives on, you know, what other me mechanical equipment, I guess you would call it, you know, is, scroll compressors is one that kind of ended up on the list um and and i have no experience with that but i've read a number of papers on it and uh of course watched some youtube videos from technicians that have gone through that especially the copeland scrolls you can uh retrofit with vfds there's a tech bulletin on it which that's pretty cool uh, yeah definitely it, it, would, it would think you know from a performance perspective should really not have any problem doing that but uh you know you're always a little bit reluctant to be the first guy on the block that tries it but yeah. apparently it's being done pretty regularly so that's good 
Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, when you're talking about VFDs and scrolls, the first thing that comes to mind is, for me, is inverter compressors. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's just a scroll compressor, you know, typically right. found on a lot of split systems, more smaller residential type systems. And it just makes it so much easier as a designer and brings a lot of value and comfort to um, whoever's using it. Um, because, you know, DX systems tend to be some of the most sensitive to oversizing um, humidity control and cycling problems. And when you th these inverter compressors, you know, with, with a scroll compressor with variable speed, you know, there's, it provides a lot more flexibility and safety of, you know, when you, you something is oversized, you have the ability to turn down the compressor to help reduce cycling and help you get better dehumidification um, and much more energy efficiency you know, throughout the year. I mean, that compressor is typically sized for some, like a 95 degree dry bulb on the condenser. Right. Which happens where, not you much. Know, rarely happens. So that, you know, most of the time that compressor is, you know, running at a much reduced speed, pulling a lot less current, a lot quieter, you know, scroll compressors can be pretty loud, but these inverter compressors tend to be, you know, most of the time they're running very quietly, very energy efficiently and providing you, you know, dehumidification um, much more effectively than you might otherwise have seen with a constant speed scroll compressor designed for, you know, a humid or design day. That is so well put. And all I can say is, gosh, dang it. You just got to know how to control it properly. <laughs> Do I sense a, sense, a little yeah. bit of sarcasm there, Clayton? You could just turn oh. it all the way on. Crank it all the way up and then shut it off and then turn your furnace on a little bit and then crank it all the way back on and then shut it off and then turn your furnace on. You could just do that too, I guess. Why do we, maybe you don't need a drive on anything. Just binary control everything. I think it'd be fine. As well, long as if that were the case, then okay. uh, Henry Ford would have put a two position throttle on a Model T. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stop, go. That's all we need. Yeah, that's all we, I mean, I don't know. Apparently that's, yeah. Okay. Can't say anymore. <laughs> yeah, you're re you're really in a bad place this morning, Clayton. <laughs> oh goodness, what's going on with me these days? I I don't know, yeah. Mark. I have no idea. So, <laughs> to build on the VFD example, um, and I don't know, maybe you, maybe at this point you don't consider this emerging technology. I would though is magnetic bearing chillers, and I know we've you know if you've listened to our podcast before, and even some of our other podcasts, this this has come up before, right? We've discussed magnetic bearing chillers and why we um, find them extremely valuable, but I don't know. I don't know if we've ever, you know, specifically sh discussed them <laughs> in a podcast episode, because I think it's, it's really amazing to me. You know, it's an, definitely an emerging technology. I would consider it. Um, it. It just, you know, how they operate amazes me. And I don't know why every chiller there's a lot of applications where a magnetic bearing, bearing chiller is going to uh be advantageous well well and i think not that i want to skip by the premise that everybody knows what they are but assuming people know what they are one of the most fascinating things to me is the fact that you can retrofit existing chiller bundles with uh magnetically levitated uh bearing chillers or compressors and that technology has been around for a while it's offered by a couple of manufacturers certainly it's a custom install but especially where hey we don't want to go through all the headache of pulling the tube bundle out or it's in a place where you can't even rebuild it uh, you know put a new compressor in you can take the you know either recip or centrifugal giant recip and replace it with a, a couple of compressors or um, compressor modules that can be retrofitted to an existing bundle. And in my mind, you know, a good designer wants to have that uh, information in their toolkit so that they can say, this makes sense because the cost to remove and replace is enormous or it's not feasible at all. And here we have this option. And I feel like you get that um, more often than not, you know, in some older facilities where <laughs> the, the chilled water plant was built and then the facility was built around it and how it's the hell are you gonna... jail yeah it's exactly <laughs> so yeah when you want to 
you need to do an upgrade and you can't physically remove the chiller. Um, I think that's awesome. Yeah. I think Mark brings up a really good point, like a benefit of magnetic bearing compressors that you don't hear much about. Like most of the benefits you hear from, which, you know, are definitely true is the, uh, part load efficiency. Yes. Um, and the fact that, you know, you don't have to deal with oil, the maintenance on these things is completely different, but, the other nice thing is a lot of manufacturers use very high speed compressors, <clears throat> which results in much smaller um, diameter impellers. Yeah. Yep. That's so a great they, point. And they, you know, some of them will use multiple smaller magnetic bearing compressors on those big tube bundles, which is much easier to get into some of those mechanical rooms. You know, right, like right. you said, you might not have the pathway to get, two bundles in and out yeah you can wheel a compressor on a dolly instead of a crane yep. <laughs> and then you have some inherent redundancy you know which i think is awesome too obviously yeah but yep. uh yeah i thought that was just like as emerging technology and i you know it's it to me it's interesting maybe i don't know maybe i'm generalizing too much on like a very uh, uh, my small personal sample size but it seems like there's a fair amount of pushback to this technology really and i don't know why and maybe that's not true like i said maybe my sample size is just you know <laughs> the wrong sample <laughs> but well uh, so this i i equate this large uh, you know very very much like the transition from pneumatic controls to ddc you have a whole cadre of salespeople, technicians that are yeah. used to being able to deal with, okay, I have a machine, it's got a, a bull gear and planetary drive that changes, you know, and I have a 30 inch compressor wheel and I have big wrenches and, you know, gantries and all this stuff to service that machine. And now we can say, wait a minute, I have right here in my little suitcase, I have a machine with the same tip speed and the compressor that doesn't use oil and all this stuff can go away. So there's a whole infrastructure that, you know, needs to fade out and, and basically be supplanted with newer technology. And there are, there's always going to be, you know, reluctance to do that. Right. Not necessarily the, the customer reluctance, but right. You know, there's a whole sales force that is anti mag bearing chillers period. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, you have the sales force that's pushing, you know, they have, they have interest in maintaining the status quo. But then there's also a lot of, you know, engineers that are hesitant, um, you know, to branch out of their comfort zone. Like they, they know what they know. So they've been right. using the same equipment, you know, for decades. They know how to design it. And they're, they, yep. It's got time proven results. So a lot of times in their mind, like why take the risk of, you know, this new technology and, you know, if it doesn't work out, you know, potentially staining their reputation, but magnetic bearing chillers, they've been around a while. Like really? I, right. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say the first ones over 20 years ago. Wow. I would have never but, imagined that, honestly. Well, that that's because they're not, they're, they haven't become widely used and, um, you know, as common as they are, I, I don't know, within the last few years, they've become mm-hmm. more and more acceptable, right. more common. Um, but the first ones, yeah, they're, it was a while ago. It just took a really long time for them to you know, get accepted. But, but you know, the performance is really amazing. Mm-hmm. We did it. We started up a 2,500 ton, had a 1,000 ton and a 1,500 ton mag bearing chiller on it. This is about five years ago. Started it up all parallel pumped condenser and chilled water, you know, primary, secondary, blah, blah, blah. And the corporate engineer flew in to look at this job because he was, you know, this will never work. And, you know, how do we know? So he was the doubting Thomas and came in and uh, we're walking him through the mechanical room, just not all the way. It was a converted warehouse and went into the warehouse so well, this is good, great. When are you going to start it up? I said it's running. Said, what? Yeah. I said go put your hand on those pumps. By the way, he said, "What do you mean?" I said they're less than ninety degrees on the surface, and 
you know, look at the power consumption of all this stuff compared to what you typically would have done. We can stand next to this chiller, have a normal conversation, and you know, look at the performance dynamics of it. And he was just absolutely, from the minute he saw it and heard it or didn't hear it, just absolutely floored. Yeah. So. No, I mean it. It the benefits are are immense in the right application. You know, in an industrial application, you know, I could speak from experience. A project I worked on um, a few years ago um, in the, the Rochester area, where we put in a two thousand ton magnetic bearing chiller, um, and this had a year round cooling load, and we had so we had, you know, I, I remember doing energy and financial calcs to see if we could uh, incorporate free cooling, you know, your typical waterside economizer with a heat exchanger between the chilled water and the, and the cooling tower. And when we started looking into magnetic bearing chillers, you know, I said, Hey, what if we send, you know, 50, 55 degree, even colder, something you're even looking, you're testing the limits of the cooling tower system, you know, going right. into the forties. You're in completely and, inverted. You know, we're, we're, yeah, completely inverted. And we are, you know, running our our chiller at like it was ridiculous, like point one point one five kW per ton, <laughs> like very very low. And when we were down there, it no longer justified the cost of installing. You know everything that we required for yeah, water set economizer. That's insane. Controls, all that stuff. Right? That's yeah, crazy. You know, in that specific project at a lower, you know, typically in the winter with waterside economizer, you want to reset your temperature higher because you don't need mm -hmm. the dehumidification. So you could create, you know, 50 degree chilled water. Yeah. And, you know, so that gives you that better approach when you're, gives you more time and hours when you could actually recoup that free cooling. But we were locked in at 40 degrees here, which was even more of a benefit to use this type of application. And yeah, it would, the energy calc said, wow, we're going to save a ton of energy and then go gets installed. And very similar to what you said, Mark, there used to be, you know, steam turbines driving these chillers, very loud, you know, big 500 horsepower constant speed pumps. Everything goes in there, new variable speed. And it is barely, you could barely hear it. You know, we're having conversations in this big mechanical room that used to have very loud, very loud, um, and yeah, that's what you get with the, some of this new technology. Yeah, it's impressive. I I completely agree. So, um, I think an, an, another technology that has existed for a very long time, which yeah, kind of is impressive to me too, is um, like heat pumps, right, or geothermal ground source heat pumps. And the, I don't know this one as I was thinking about emerging technology and, you know, we don't, we're not, we don't generally talk about residential uh, applications in our podcast. So I understand geothermal has a, a, a pretty good spot, you know, in residential applications for heating and cooling, but what about like commercially? Is this, is this like an emerging technology in the commercial realm at all? Or is this like something don't waste your time. You, you can't get enough tons out of a geothermal, system to cool you know your larger commercial space um I, I just something that i don't know i just thought it'd be worth having a little bit of a bounce it off you guys and see what you thought about it because i have seen mm, for like lead buildings you know using this technology has allowed probably a facility to become a, a certain metal you know but I don't know if that's just some. Does it go past that? Well, I, I think, uh, like you said, geothermals itself, I guess, nothing really new. Right. But there's a couple things that come to mind with current events that will impact the implication, you know, implementation of geothermal. Oh, interesting. Um, one is the electrification of heating. You know, there's a big push with, uh, you know, environmental movements, you know, politics to when you're trying to move away from fossil fuels for heating. Um, you're seeing a lot of push towards electric driven heat pumps, um, which I think is going to potentially increase 
the demand um, for some projects to look into this technology where maybe they wouldn't have, have considered it before. Um, the other thing is geothermal heat pumps offer you seasonal thermal energy storage, which is different than like, like when you think of like um, thermal energy storage, like, like for chillers and ice banks, that's okay, typically yeah. like a daily, because your right. cycle times, you know, at night you're freezing your yeah. ice banks and during yep, the day, right. you know, you're drawing from them. That's like a daily storage, you know, seasonal storage opens up different opportunities to, you know, optimize your central energy system, especially when you get into like district energy systems. Um, and there's a lot of potential there because it requires a lot of engineering and energy analysis um, to, to really optimize it. But I think when I geothermal, like you said, it's been around, but I think there's some newer applications, some newer forces and some newer uh, applications of it that we might be seeing over the next few years. Well, and I think even if you look around, there are applications where they're using um, mag bearing chillers as your heat pump. Yeah. We, we looked at a yeah. project that did not go ahead, but it was a 13,000 ton project where it was semi-clean manufacturing, so they needed reheat water, uh, and we sized it up for 105 degree reheat water, and then uh, cooling and heating, so we had a, a, a well, uh, aquifer that was right there that we could put an injection well in, and sized it all up, and yeah, the cost basically doubled, but the energy consumption was a little more than half of what uh, traditional boiler and chiller would be. So, they, I mean, they didn't do it. In fact, they didn't do anything, but the, and they still have packaged rooftops with gas-fired heat. So, damn it. Uh, well, that's, you know, yeah. oftentimes what happens. Yeah. But, the viability is there and there are a number of projects especially on campuses um, universities and governmental campuses where they are using uh, combinations of chillers to do larger scale geothermal so run me through this then and for our listeners maybe this is a little learning session um like how do you run your mag bearing chiller as a heat pump do you like a geothermal right re reverses the refrigeration cycle to you're either adding or removing heat, depending if you're heating and cooling, right? So like, what is your mag bearing chiller doing? Are you, are you, you're just switching your condenser and evaporator to what's giving or taking? Well, you're well we have to assume number one, that uh, both evaporator and uh, condenser have closed loops. So there has to be a heat yeah. exchanger yeah, separating yeah, yeah. the ground source or, you know, the aquifer from anything contacting the chiller. You're not running and nasty that, water through it, right? No, and then you're basically switching from, you know, my evaporator side either goes to the ground yeah. or it goes to the building, and a secondary heat exchanger can go to heat the building if we're, or provide reheat to the building if we don't have to reject to ground or we don't have to reject all of it to ground. Right. Yeah. I think that's awesome. Yeah. It is really cool. Yeah. I don't know. Like I said, it was just something I wanted to get your thought on it. And Jim too, that's some pretty good. I mean, that's great insight because I think it's obviously extremely viable technology. I just didn't know if it was at the commercial scale yet. You know what I mean? Like you could buy a five ton geothermal heat pump, um, but I don't know how big they want. Right. Could you, can, can you buy a 10 ton now or a 15 oh, yeah. ton? They're, I mean, they're, you know, within the last few years I've seen, well, first of all, there's custom heat pumps in the industrial field. You could get whatever you want, but yeah, I guess it's true. And, and you know what? It's it's funny because a lot of this stuff is uh, readily available in Europe. Like in Europe, you right. could get a lot of this stuff, um, you know, off the shelf without any, you know without any issues. I assume um, gas prices are higher in Europe. <laughs> yeah, well, they, yeah, they're they're they have different. They have all kinds of different effects. You know, their fuel prices, fossil fuel prices are higher, a lot, a lot higher taxes on fossil fuels there. Um, but they've they've been, uh, you know, for all for those reasons and others, just their buildings and living spaces tend to be smaller than, and they have a lot mm. of times higher density. Yeah. Yep. You see a lot of 
heat pumps. Like they're they're definitely they've been using them for a lot longer than we have. And I know I've been working on projects where I'm trying to get some of this equipment in North America and I have a tough time. Really? But yeah, like some of the big name, your big name chiller manufacturers, because you know, it doesn't take much to switch a chill, like a centrifugal chiller to a heat pump, right? You, you're just reversing. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you just have, you know, a four, well, to make it oversimplify it, you're reversing yeah. the flow refrigeration. Yeah, part. exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, there there are centrifugal heat pumps that we you know when you're talking 500, 1,000, 1,500 ton centrifugal chillers. You know, a lot of these name brand manufacturers, these uh, the big big ones have heat pumps available. But I know it was about a year or two ago. I was trying to get them in North America. I was having a hard time, but there you could get them without a problem in Europe. Hmm. Um, but there are still, I know they have like scroll compressor yeah. here where you could get them up, you know, 60 to 125 tons. That's readily available here. It's pretty impressive too, though. Honestly, I wouldn't have maybe anticipated that much. Okay. So yeah, geothermal, it's definitely not a new technology, but it seems like we will start, we may start seeing more commercial applications of it. Uh, ground source heat pumps, geothermal, which is cool. I mean, that's exciting to me. I think as a, at a, at a residential level, it's extremely viable. So seeing it kind of being applied commercially is, uh, is very exciting to me. Um, switching gears a little bit then for like new and emerging technology, like, well, like we started this podcast saying, uh, I didn't, I haven't found much per se about mechanical equipment, right? Um, and a lot of it's in the, in the, in the networking and technology end of it. So the first thing that came up as like, you know, big advancement in, I guess, you know, technology for HVAC, whatever you want to call it is a mesh network. Right. And that's kind of, I don't know, to like super simplify it, like all the devices can talk to themselves to, to make this mesh as you would call it across a facility. So you don't need. I would assume you don't need like physical network cables going from all the way from point A to point B because these devices talk to each other as, as they move further and further out. Um, is that a, that's a pretty safe assumption or generalization of this? That is. Okay. And, and that's pretty much where the, the hype, whatever you want to call it is in it, right? Like, okay, I got this old building, um, doesn't have a lot of network infrastructure, maybe doesn't need a lot of network infrastructure, but I want to put in a new building management system with new controls and all that. You, you're saying, oh, let me just put my mesh network in instead of pulling yeah. fiber or, you know, that, I don't know. That's the premise. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Zigbee and other mesh networks is that everything talks to everything. Therefore, all you need to do is have a connection to the end device one end device and you'll get all your information so that's like how i can hack a building through a thermostat it's a way <laughs> uh, but it, it i mean i've i've done a few different projects with mesh networks and yeah the theory is better than the practice okay my experience you know and i think now i would probably with, tend to agree yeah with iot we've basically now taken away the need for a mesh network, assuming we have wireless technology, but that presents a whole different set of challenges, you know, with a super flat network, everything talks to everything. Essentially mm -hmm. the need for security goes way up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and oftentimes that, that is not even addressed. So, yeah, I feel like I would definitely want, you know, a, a dedicated, LAN per system to keep things separated and safe and you have to physically be on it to talk to you know anything if you're going to do anything malicious or whatever and um but I guess that's probably generally where that's not where the trend is going for the most part I mean you see everything is IOT networked talk to everything so why is that um why is that uh yeah. I mean cheaper exciting i don't know, <laughs> you know? The money damn it it's always the money <laughs> <laughs> yeah is it yeah. that much cheaper though like 
to buy devices that can do their IoT or mesh net than com- compared to pulling. I, I guess it's it's really site specific. You, you can't generalize, Correct. but there's plenty of instances, obviously, where it is a lot cheaper, or else it wouldn't exist. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Doesn't change the technology of the equipment. It just changes how the equipment talks. Correct. Yeah. And you know when it changes how it talks, basically now you can put more information in a specific location and transmit it versus um, either running an MSTP network to it or uh, something else that has to then translate it again. You can put, you know, a higher density of sensing or control equipment out there that uh, before we would have to run a whole bunch of wires to, and now we run just one. Right, right. One cable to an air handler versus, you know, 40 cables coming to and from the IO on a specific device. Makes sense. Has this been being pushed at all? I just haven't really seen it. Uh, you know. Again, it, it's emerging yeah. and it, it's showing up more and more from an integrator perspective because there are Got quite it. a few IoT industrial devices. I mean, a lot of stuff. Right. So when you get into that world, you know, you can buy IoT pressure, flow transmitters, all those things. That's crazy. Uh, well, it is and it isn't. You know, what's the requirement for data exchange in the HVAC world? You know, if I get data every five seconds or one second, yeah, HVAC. I'm happy, yep. right? Mm-hmm. In the process world, that that's not enough Completely to keep pace story. with the manufacturing process. I just don't trust, like, you know... <laughs> I want a freaking wire going to my sensor and it going back to a controller and then then it's done. Well, I want a pneumatic tube, but that's not coming back either. <laughs> yeah, I want an oil bearing chiller. But... <laughs> yeah. Oh, damn it. Um, what about automated configuration? That was another thing that came up uh, in our discussions too, kind of before the podcast. That is that's a emerging technology. I mean, it that's is. that's yeah. interesting. Um it, but, it, is that like kind of falling along the lines of like weak AI? If you listen to our previous podcast, in a way, uh, uh, mm, I don't maybe think not. I don't think it's that much. I'm, I think you're talking about automated configuration, like a menu-driven. Uh, okay, we're going to scan the QR code, and now we know what the I/O is, and we can plug into it, and off we go. And that has been around for a little while. Um, you know the automated configuration of the control system on a custom basis i don't think you'll ever get to that point right 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 okay but you're just saying like well it's funny you mentioned qr code because i see those on everything i didn't even know like um compressors like yeah but they don't work well (laughs) you're right about that you're absolutely right but like I'm like, what the? I'm looking in a, in a rooftop unit, and it's got a QR code on the compressor, and boop, I can scan it, and it, it theoretically tells me what it is. Uh, well, you're right, which wasn't correct, or not. Right. <laughs> or not. So, but that's kind of that's the theory is like, okay, I have this piece of equipment or device, whatever. Let me QR scan it, and now boop, 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 it's connected and done, and move on with life. I mean, well, and even beyond that, I think that now I put myself back in the programmers. Uh, seat. Right. And even 15 years ago, uh, there were programming tools out there that, okay, we can select, is it a single zone, multi-zone, dual duct, you know, fan power boxes, whatever kind of air handler it is. You know, does it have chill water, hot water? How many stages is it? Uh, I mean, chill water or DX, how many stages is it DX or what kind of DX control? Is it steam or hot water? You know, go through that whole selection. Is it a relief fan or a return fan? And then hit go and you would get up you would get a 90% program ready to dump into that air handler i'll tell you what you would get a poopy pid control loop and no <laughs> one would change it if it wasn't commissioned <laughs> well okay <laughs> i give and i agree and actually you would you know it was supposed to be 90% it was probably really only 60% um because there's always adaptations and changes that are made, you know, yeah. based on the designer's requirements. 
or the location and the size. I mean, yeah, like right. I, it's not like you can copy the VAV program to a hundred different VAVs and have them all work the same perfectly because you know, it, where is that it? That doesn't big, work. Yeah, right. right, right, right. So like I, I get the theory of automated configuration, but I see the challenges with it too. Yep. <laughs> to put it lightly, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Um, okay. Any other final thoughts on automated configuration? Uh, I mean, there are companies that do it halfway right. You know, I mean, look at Microsoft. You get your new laptop and it walks you through. And as soon as you That's true. connect a new device to it, yep. you know, it goes and gets the data, connects to it. It works in, you know, 15 seconds. So it's not like this isn't doable, but there, I don't think, is a consensus nor a willingness to collaborate from all manufacturers. You know, this would, in my mind, this would be an outgrowth of BACnet and the next you know, major challenge for BACnet is a universal programming language. So I can mm -hmm. program all my controllers the same way. Well, we haven't reached consensus on that yet. And the next step beyond that would be automatic configuration. Well, yeah, we have, we have a ways to go, but I think it, it is it coming. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll say, um, like Apple products are really good at automated configuration. Which is like a, a just a super tiny scale of what we're talking about, but like right. you buy a new Apple product and you turn it on and you already have an existing Apple product, like they're already talking. They know they're on Clayton Clayton's house, and here's I mean everything, you know. Yep. So I yeah, you're right about that. Like when you give that analogy, taking that to a larger scale would be really cool, but yeah, yeah. yeah challenging i suppose and i'll give a shout out to nick too if you guys haven't um noticed he's not on this podcast and i thought he probably would have had a really good question right at that right at this transition so shout out to nick we miss you <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> so what about like what would you consider and maybe we've really been talking a lot about old technology but like is is there some old whatever you want to define old as technology that's like coming back absorption chillers was one that came to mind like this is super old technology but like now i don't know is it is it coming back is there a new spot for absorption chillers and other technology is similar to that in our world today um any other examples of maybe old technology that's coming back um first thing that comes to mind is carbon dioxide refrigeration you know that was That's carbon a, co2 yeah, was one of the right. yeah one of the first refrigerants you know used oh man you're gonna have to like give me another learning lesson real quick a, a 10 a one minute rundown on this yeah i guess um you know from what i recall co2 was one of the first refrigerants used um, in the refrigeration process, it's a like natural. That's literally the refrigerant and the refrigeration yeah, cycle. Really? Yep. Um, and you know, it's completely a completely natural refrigerant. Right. Um, you don't have greenhouse gas or ozone depletion concerns with it, nor do you have toxicity or flammability or any other of the concerns you have with all the other synthetic refrigerants. Right. However the thermal dynamic properties of it make it more of a challenge. If you're dealing with higher pressures, it's typically used today mostly for lower temperature refrigeration because the critical point um, is low. You know, you're, once you hit 87 degrees Fahrenheit, now you're a, a supercritical fluid, which means you're no longer operating as a typical refrigeration system, but that's all been kind of taken care of with today's, you know, gas coolers and different ejectors, there's different technologies now where a lot of systems are using CO2 as their refrigerant, their primary and only refrigerant. So like in a, in like a vapor compression cycle, like refrigeration. Yeah. Cycle, yeah. It's a vapor really? compression cycle, but you know, if you're condensed, if your outdoor temperature starts to creep above 87 degrees, your outdoor units no longer condensing the refrigerant. It's actually cooling a supercritical 
um, fluid because above the critical point, if you go back to your thermodynamics. Oh man, I got yeah. back now. <laughs> once you're above the critical point of a fluid, it it acts as both a, uh, a liquid and a gas. Okay. You're in that different dynamic. Um, but, you know, we have, uh, com- you know, gas coolers and compressors that they can handle those higher pressures and temperatures um, and the different uh, characteristics of CO2. Uh, if you're interested, just Google transcritical CO2 systems because they operate both, um, you know, above the critical point and below so they're called transcritical and it's pretty pretty interesting stuff that's really interesting and i like you said i assume the advancements in you know material and building of this equipment has allowed this to happen because now we can handle these different higher pressures and such in our physical equipment to do this Mm -hmm. thermodynamic cycle i think it's both that and well you know so then go back let's go back you know they started out with natural refrigerants and then they discovered the synthetic refrigerants but they didn't realize that some of these things were doing nasty yeah things to our environment right they're yeah poking holes in the ozone um you know greenhouse effect and all that and now we're starting to dip our toes back to some of the natural refrigerants um you know propane is a natural refrigerant obviously that's flammable um but, you know, butane, there's a lot of natural refrigerants out there. I think if I had to think of old technology coming back, I think it's some of these um, natural refrigerants that were phased out because at the time it was cheaper um, and more, actually, some of them are more energy efficient to use some of the synthetic refrigerants. Mm-hmm. Just the, the triple point and the critical point of them and the energy density, it just made more sense to use those when, but now that you know, we start to see some of the environmental effects of them. I'm starting to see a lot of focus going back to, to these natural refrigerants to see how we can use them and, uh, you know, with our current technology. Well, I was not ready for that. So I learned something today. Good job. <laughs> what about you, Mark? You got anything to, can you top that? I got anything to add to that? No, I can't top that. I I mean, that was good, Jim. Nice. But, but- I, I look at it like um, what's old is new is, I mean, that that's everywhere nowadays. I mean, there yeah. are you know, fluidized bed boilers and biomass boilers um, making a, you know, a resurgence. And there's new technology added to be able to make them mm-hmm. uh, more environmentally, maybe not friendly, but a lower environmental impact. Uh, and certainly if you're harvesting biomass for uh feedstock that's a renewable by itself that you know there's also orc generators have been around for a long time again as jim said earlier uh technology found in europe not applied so much here in the u.s but all those kinds of things with new technology applied have to get better and better and better um you know just like automobiles have evolved and gotten more efficient and cleaner same thing will happen with some of these older technologies right right yeah just keep you yeah improving like the the core principles kind of remain the same but you're improving how it operates Mm -hmm. so yeah that makes sense um do we have the discussion about renewables in this podcast like solar wind stuff like that um i can completely delete that whole sentence too but <laughs> no i think that or do, i mean the, do we touch on it or do you not want to because i, I don't know you know I, I probably needs its own podcast well maybe well, maybe we will then what do you think needs, mark it needs its own podcast but i think emerging technologies um you know i would say 15 years ago 20 years ago when solar were emerging technologies now we've gotten to the point where economics is starting to and maybe not you know economics when i talk about economics i'm talking about standalone unincentivized economics yeah. uh start to make sense so the technology's improved the cost has come down of, of manufacturing installation maintenance all those things based strictly on market demand so in the first you know, incubation stage, the the government incentives were required mm-hmm. to help get the 
processes in place to make the technologies long-term viable and, and there there's a place for it um and i think the technology will continue to improve and you know a lot depends on what happens with storage technology uh which you know right now not really economically viable and when you really dig into it is not really um environmentally prudent so yeah i think it's a it, new technology it still is pretty fresh and you know really has some mainstream uh, market share but i i look at economics as being um how do you want to say unpolluted undiluted yeah. i want free market economics to, yeah. to drive this not necessarily um you know anybody else picking what is viable and what's not based on tax or uh, other incentives. And I'll add to that um, carbon footprint from like inception of manufacture. Like if you look at the whole life, like the life, um, what's the right word I'm looking for? Um, the lifetime of, you know, your, your renewable energy source, how much carbon has it, CO2 has it offset in its life? Because you have to obviously add carbon co2 to build transport install maintain and all that so i don't know i mean that's to me is a big thing too to look at it as a is it a viable option or not and is it the right thing to do and what have you <laughs> so i guess that's where we'll leave that little bit because yeah it definitely deserves its own podcast and anybody tuning in if um if you have any thoughts on that feel free to comment reach out Maybe you'll be a guest. Who knows? <laughs> Perfect. And with that, I suppose we'll wrap it up, guys. Uh, thanks a lot, Mark and Jim, uh, for your insight. And stay tuned for our listeners for the next podcast episode. We haven't been announcing what we'll be talking about from week to week lately. And I think I'm going to keep it that way to give you guys a little bit of su suspense to see what, what comes next. Hope you've been liking the episodes a lot. So have a great day, everybody.